Today's sanctions are another step in the policy of pressuring the Maduro regime to allow Venezuela to escape from its terrible crisis through free and fair presidential elections. There will be more steps and further pressure in the coming weeks and months. The United States remains firmly committed to the people of Venezuela and to the cause of freedom there. And as we saw when President Guaido received an ovation during the State of the Union message, this cause has bipartisan support in the United States. We look forward to the day when Venezuela is free and all our sanctions can be lifted. Until that day comes, the pressure will continue and it will build steadily. During the Trump administration, many liberals were fond of saying that cruelty was the point of his policies. A framing that gave them comfort, an effort to convince themselves that they were different. But if there's a realm where conservatives and liberals have more in common than either would probably like to admit, it's in the area of foreign policy. Elliot Abrams, in the clip you just heard, says as much boasting about the bipartisan support for opposition leader Juan Guaido. Perhaps the perfect illustration of the bipartisan consensus in Washington is the illegal and immoral sanctions against Venezuela. When it comes to sanctions, suffering is the point, as Venezuelan Vice President Delcy Rodriguez recently said. They do not care about the suffering they have caused the Venezuelan people. They don't care. They admit it. If we have to harm children, we'll harm them. Women, men, seniors, the whole civilian population. It doesn't matter. Their aim was to not recognize the will of the Venezuelan people that legitimately re-elected, in electoral process, President Nicolás Maduro. They have a political objective, to oust a government that is not aligned with their interests, that is not subservient to its mandates, its orders, a government that could not be extorted. And that is why they went after the civilian population. That is why they commit crimes against humanity. Welcome to the Venezuela Analysis Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Luis Granado Ceja. The Venezuela Analysis Podcast brings independent, on-the-ground, English-language coverage of Venezuela and the Bolivarian process. You'll hear news and in-depth analysis about the country, as well as coverage of leftists and grassroots forces. In the inaugural episode of this new edition of the podcast, we will look at the impact of U.S.-led sanctions on Venezuela. On today's program, we're honored to feature Elena Duhan. She is the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the negative impact of unilateral coercive measures on the enjoyment of human rights. She is a professor of international law at the Belarusian State University in Belarus and the director of the Peace Research Center. But first, a conversation between Venezuela Analysis Editor Ricardo Vaz and I about the media coverage of Venezuela. I'm joined here today by Ricardo Vaz, who is one of the editors here at the team with Venezuela Analysis. And Ricardo is an excellent colleague to work with and is responsible for those Twitter threads you've probably seen on our account talking about some of the grave mistakes that mainstream media outlets commit when they're covering Venezuela 
and the situation in the country. Ricardo, you know, right now, it seems to be a lot of attention precisely on how the media is responding to U.S. imperialism. And I say that because of the situation in Afghanistan. It, the media largely ignored Afghanistan for the 20 years that the country was under U.S. occupation, but all of a sudden now there's lots of scrutiny, scrutiny that perhaps we wish we would have seen earlier. But it speaks to something. It speaks to the issue of how mainstream corporate media outlets, particularly in the United States, cover countries where the United States is engaged in imperial efforts at regime change, some more deliberately militaristic, like we saw in Afghanistan, but obviously also in the case of Venezuela. So what do you think about the way that media coverage in general has handled the issue of Venezuela, and in particular with this transition from the Trump administration to the Biden administration? Hey, Jose Luis. Yes, I'm, I'm guilty as charged of uh, most of our, our Twitter content, and especially the the hard takes, you know, really taking to task the corporate media coverage. But I think you make a great point. I think uh, we usually say that the, the corporate media in, in the United States, you know, just to, to focus on that, they aren't very eager to speak truth to power, right? And we saw a slight change when it came to the Trump administration, where perhaps it was something so outrageous that even corporate journalists felt like they had to challenge it somehow. But that, wasn't, that did not extend to foreign policy. So sometimes you even had this uh, absurd perspective that Trump was not imperialistic enough on, on foreign policy. Of course, it was more uh, a matter of form than, than substance because all the imperial adventures, you know, to put it mildly, continued or even expanded. And, and Venezuela is a, a significant case in point. Because the the aggression, I mean, regime change was always a goal. I mean, from the the moment when Chavez arrived and it was clear that he was not going to be just another U.S. puppet, Washington was immediately hell-bent on, on regime change. And we saw uh, overt coup attempts like in 2002, and then it transitioned to more subtle attempts to oust the government. And then after Chavez, after Chavez's death, that really went into, into overdrive and it slowly ramped up. And there was this infamous Obama decree that declared Venezuela an unusual and extraordinary threat to U.S. national security. And that was, I mean, legal with lots of air quotes because it's not really legal. The basis for the economic aggression that we saw later on, which really took off with Trump. And even though, you know, as I was saying before, the media was eager to challenge Trump on, on some things uh, on, on Venezuela, it was far from the case. I mean, there was an overwhelming endorsement of attempts to overthrow the Maduro government. There were lots of false narratives just you know, spread. And then you have this uh, very well-known well technique that if you repeat a lie often enough, it just becomes accepted and it becomes background. You create this background of lies on which you can build more falsehoods. And that was basically why you saw this uh, sanctions policy. So you know, starting really in 2017, the US Treasury Department levied lots and lots of unilateral measures that have uh, that have had a devastating impact on on the venezuelan economy and by consequence on the venezuelan people with little to no questioning from from the media and in that sense it has been our role uh, here at venezuela analysis to you know challenge that and and explain what the sanctions are really doing perhaps we can get some into some specific examples of how the media tries to 
to conceal and and you know in a, in a bias in a very biased way uh, minimize the effects of sanctions. Yeah, that's the part that I find interesting is that you know media outlets invariably have to also to some degree protect this image of themselves as being impartial. So they, they're not so insidious as to some of the you know more ludicrous assertions that, that you sometimes see in the media, but they, they use sort of sneaky tricks, you know, for lack of a better term. What are some of those tricks that they use to try to mask what's actually happening in terms of U.S. policy towards Venezuela? Yeah, I think tricks is really the right word. There are very, you know, underhanded, euphemistic ways to talk about U.S. sanctions. I mean, in the very beginning, they used to say that these were just sanctions against high-ranking officials. So, you know, we are leaving the the 30 million Venezuelans safe, but, you know, Maduro and his not get away with, you know, whatever they're being charged with, you know. It's important to say that these, these things never need to be proven, right? There was uh, a very interesting time, and, and I wrote an article about this for FAIR, when Trump was alleging uh, election fraud and the media was outraged because he was saying this without any evidence. And yet at the same time, there was, a, or roughly at the same time, there was a legislative election here in Venezuela where they were more than happy to say that there had been fraud without needing any evidence. So this is really the only country in the world where election fraud can just be you know, peddled without any any need to back that, that assertion. So... That was the beginning, you know, saying that the sanctions were just against high-ranking individuals when they were really starting to target uh, the whole economy and especially the oil sector. And then the tune started to change and the media started to say that, you know, the sanctions are meant to pressure Maduro. And, and pressure is, is really a very euphemistic way to say that, you know, the sanctions are meant to generate suffering for the entire population in the hope that either it will force the government to, to surrender or it will trigger a coup or, or whatever that may be. There was a period towards the end of the Trump administration when some uh, mainstream outlets, not only uh, in the US, but for example, Deutsche Welle in, in Germany, started to take stock of the, of the damage that sanctions were, were doing. I mean, and, and this was no secret. For example, this uh, report, there was a very important report by, by the Center for Economic and Policy Research. And this was in mid 2019. And they were already said at the time that sanctions had caused at least 40,000 deaths. So it was uh, really a, a deadly policy. There's no, there's no other way around. So for a time, you could see corporate journalists start to question uh, the effects of sanctions, but always in this perspective of whether they had achieved their goal or not, you know, whether the suffering was worth it or not, you know, going back to this famous or infamous quote by Madeleine Albright, on whether the, the deaths of uh, half a million Iraqi children had been worth it or not. But then, you know, once Biden came into office, that really went down the window. And, you know, if, if, if the mainstream media was somewhat open for a, little, for a short window to, to question Trump's policy, they were more than on board with Biden just keeping the same uh, very harsh measures in place. And perhaps one of the, the most striking examples that we saw recently was, I believe, by, by Reuters, where they said that sanctions were meant to cut off cash flow to Maduro, you know. So here you have a policy that has caused tens of thousands of deaths, has caused causes tens of billions of losses a year, and somehow corporate journalists find a way to describe it as if it's, you know, cutting, cutting your kid's allowance, right? Something so, so trivial to, to describe something that's so uh, wide-reaching. Yeah, and I wonder what we can say about this situation 
when this has real consequences for people, right? And, you know, it seems like I'm thinking about the situation that happened around the, the Venezuela A concert in Cucuta, you know? I remember watching those events take place live. And I remember watching the infamous scene of the, you know, so-called humanitarian aid being lit on fire and watching as the opposition, as they often do, utilize the kinds of confrontational tactics in their street demonstrations that they have the propensity to use. And so I immediately jumped to the conclusion. I was like, if those trucks are burning, it's the Molotov cocktails that they launched. But obviously that wasn't the narrative that came out of the experience that day. And, you know, it was used as a propaganda campaign by the U.S. government to say, you know, look at this monster who burns humanitarian aid. Obviously, many months down the road, the truth came out, the truth that we knew was there all along, that it was actually the opposition activists who had inadvertently lit one of the trucks on fire. And so that contrition from outlets like The New York Times, for example, did come, but it came too late. And so, and I'm wondering in the, in the case of the situation with Venezuela, for example, I'm shocked that most people don't know that only the UN Security Council is the one who can legally implement sanctions, right? When the US implements these unilateral sanctions, they're illegal by definition. But that kind of reporting doesn't come out in time. Do you think, you know, are we going to find ourselves in a situation like we are now with respect to, to Afghanistan in terms of the contrition from media outlets, the scrutiny coming too late. Yeah, I think that's a, the the example that you're mentioning is is very useful, right? I mean, if there's a fire, perhaps you know people handling Molotov cocktails would be some the obvious place to start. And the same thing with sanctions. You know, if there's wide-reaching economic destruction, perhaps examine that sanctions are, if not the main cause behind it, at least something that has seriously aggravated uh, an economic crisis. And as many uh, economists and experts have pointed out, not only did it seriously aggravate it, but it also shut the door on any uh, attempts to turn the situation around. And I think the, 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 the point that you make about sanctions being illegal is, is actually the source of another uh, very useful corporate media trick, which is that they refer to sanctions when they want to talk about the negative effects by using the, what I call the, the Maduro says trick. So basically they spent half the article demonizing Maduro and then they say, oh, well, Maduro called sanctions illegal and blamed them for the, the economic woes, right? So they, this, this demonized figure that we've uh, called a dictator and we've said he's responsible for election fraud and human rights abuses, never mind that we don't, don't ever need to prove that. Now the, the, you know, the, the illegal nature of sanctions and their consequences is just his opinion. So that's a, a very uh, sophisticated way for, for the corporate media to try and, and, and shift the responsibility away. And I, I'm not sure if we'll ever see uh, real contrition from the media. I mean, if we look at other examples of uh, U.S. foreign policy, I don't think that uh, there's ever really a holding people to account on, on their responsibilities. I think it's more likely that the future coverage will be on, on the fact that U.S. policy failed to, to topple the Bolivar Revolution, at least so far, and I hope it continues like that, and not so much as to the consequences of, of the, what the U.S. was trying to do in, in trying to achieve that goal. And here's another thing that I find really impressive. You know, we've been producing these, these new infographics, and they've been doing extraordinarily well. People are obviously thirsty 
for accurate information. Tell us a little bit more about some of the thinking that behind producing this information and how you feel about the reaction of people, of our audience, to some of the content that we're producing to try to actually give that fair coverage of Venezuela. Yeah, that's a very good point. We're also very happy at, at how they, they turned out and how they did uh, on, on social media and the, and the reception that they had. Uh, I think our reasoning was that you know, these measures have, have been in place for a while now and they've had very serious consequences, but there, there haven't been many, many pieces that really explain them in a, in a, in a simple way. And, and perhaps I could also levy a criticism against the, the Venezuelan government and the, the foreign office in particular. I don't think they've been very successful in explaining sanctions to the solidarity movement. There's a bit of a, you know, a one-size-fits-all policy where, you know, sanctions are, are, are talked in a very abstract way and as a, a kind of a, an explanation for everything that's wrong without, any, without too many efforts to really, you know, distinguish, distinguish the different measures and how they, what impact they have. So that was basically what we were looking for. So the first infographic, just, just to make a quick description, was kind of an overall explanation of the U.S. blockade, you know, the different sectors of the economy that it has affected you know, from banking to mining to, to the oil sector, of course. And then some of the consequences. That's another issue, which is that it's very hard to measure uh, the, the impact that it's having on the ground. And again, I don't want to, to be too critical of the government, but there's, there's been a shortage of, of data, of data in, 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 the recent, in the recent past. So it, it, it makes it very hard to measure the, the consequence of the U.S. blockade, even though we can kind of extrapolate from what we know. And then we had the second infographic just dedicated to the oil sanctions. And, and I mean, it was no secret, not just for us, but also for U.S. policymakers. They, they openly confessed that they really needed to target the oil sector because it's the main source of revenue for the Venezuelan state. So we really detailed all the measures that were put in place, you know, from the, the first financial sanction, sanctions in mid-2017, the oil embargo, in January 2019, and then everything that followed, you know, including secondary sanctions. Imagine that for, if we're talking about legality, the, the U.S. Treasury Department somehow has the authority to, you know, levy sanctions against a Russian company for buying Venezuelan oil. You know, where's the legality in that? And of course, you know, as these measures are put in place, there's a very clear parallel in terms of Venezuela's oil output, which is going down and down, and, and it hits historic lows in the second half of last year before a very modest recovery. So basically, you know, to summarize, our idea was to have some compact pieces which allow people to have a first approach to U.S. measures and their consequences. And the reception has been very good so far. We're starting to see these pieces circulate independently, and we very much hope that there's some signs that the tide is changing in terms of the public opinion against sanctions, and we hope this will be a kind of ammunition to really convince the public that this has been a, not just a disastrous policy, but a policy that has had very deadly consequences for the Venezuelan population, and thus it needs to be opposed with you know, all efforts. Yeah, I think that's the perfect point to, to end our quick little chat of, on. I think people... And I agree that I think the Venezuelan government itself has not done a good enough job of really conveying the fact that there are people on the other on the receiving end of the effects of these sanctions. There's a very real suffering that is happening. There is uh, the very real consequences to these policies that make it so that 
people have difficulty finding the diesel to get to work, finding the equipment necessary to meet their medical needs. To your second point about the, the second infographic, right? Like, I don't know how you can't view the sanctioning of the number one export commodity the way that they have as anything but a crime against humanity because it ends up really causing such immense, immense suffering to, to the people of the population. There isn't, I think, enough of appreciation that the people paying the price are Venezuelans and people living in Venezuela. Yeah, absolutely. And it has a bit of a snowball effect, right? Because if you target the oil industry, then there's less money in general. If there's less money for food imports, food imports in turn are more expensive because of sanctions. So there's hardly any aspect of Venezuelan day-to-day -day life that has been untouched by U.S. sanctions. And I think that's really important that people outside understand it. With news that the extremist and recalcitrant elements of the political opposition intend to take part in regional elections this coming November, it would appear that we have reached a critical juncture in Venezuelan politics. The democratic credentials of the opposition, even the so-called moderate opposition, were always dubious, however. The opposition cried fraud in every election they did not win. Hardly unsurprising considering how Hugo Chavez upended politics and left the opposition without a base save for the political and economic elite that my colleague Ricardo Vaz described in a recent piece as being driven by, quote, a racist elitism that saw running the country as a birthright taken away by a low-class populist, end quote. This attitude led them to pursue a long series of increasingly absurd and ultimately unsuccessful schemes to recoup what they considered their birthright, including coups, mercenary invasions, and insurrections. The opposition's embrace of Washington's pretend presidency definitely takes the cake. But the U.S. miscalculated. Hardly surprising considering they were relying on information from their desperately out-of-touch allies inside Venezuela. Despite Washington throwing all of its diplomatic weight behind Juan Guaido and a very real economic crisis affecting the lives of working-class Venezuelans, Guaido failed to ever really exercise any real political power. That doesn't mean, however that his pretend presidency did not have real consequences. Although sanctions were first imposed by Barack Obama, and it is worth emphasizing again the bipartisan consensus in Washington concerning regime change in Venezuela, the punishing sanctions on the country's oil industry came under Donald Trump and were made possible thanks to the maximum pressure campaign to force Maduro out by any means necessary. I want to pause to emphasize what the somewhat innocuous-sounding maximum pressure meant in real terms. $8 billion in frozen assets abroad. A massive drop in revenue from oil, estimated to be as much as $30 billion per year. A 69% drop of imports of goods and services nearly a third of the population suffering malnourishment, 300,000 chronic disease patients without access to services, and a massive deterioration of public services and infrastructure. We recently published two infographics breaking down Washington and its allies' economic aggression against Caracas, and the targeting of the oil industry in particular. I encourage everyone to visit our website to learn more. 
In short, these sanctions have produced immense suffering. Indeed, as we heard at the beginning of the program, that was their aim. It is for this reason that it is a welcome sight to see 19 U.S. House Democrats demand that the Joe Biden administration lift broad and indiscriminate sanctions against Venezuela and support ongoing dialogue efforts being held in Mexico City. Even the U.S. Government Accountability Office noted that, quote, U.S. sanctions have likely contributed to the country's steep economic decline, end quote. They're not alone. A group of U.N. independent experts recently made the call, quote, the punishment of innocent civilians must end, end quote. They ask countries that impose unilateral sanctions to withdraw them, or at least minimize sanctions, to guarantee the rule of law and that human rights are not affected. For more on this, we bring you our interview with Elena Duhan, one of the signatories of that letter. The uh, situation with application of unilateral sanctions today is very complicated due to the fact that the scope as well as types, means and forms of unilateral sanctions is expanding a lot. And uh, therefore, we shouldn't speak about unilateral sanctions as uh, a sort of absolutely similar activities. They all are different. And in the situation of Venezuela, we uh, speak about the verity of unilateral measures taken to Venezuela. So uh, we shall speak first of all about the sectoral sanctions applied against the specific sectors of economy of Venezuela, like for example, mining or oil industry, as well as transportation system and so forth. Uh, we shall speak about the uh, broad scope of so-called targeted sanctions imposed over specific individuals as well as main companies of Venezuela, which uh, uh, basically prevent any transactions with uh, participation of these companies and these uh, individuals. Uh, we also shall take into account that uh, the quite a lot of governments like, for example, the United States uh, has announced that uh, they do not recognize president of Venezuela as being able to represent the state. And as a result, they imposed a number of sanctions over Venezuela state officials because of the uh, position ex officio. And uh, therefore, it uh, makes it very complicated for these state officials to represent uh, Venezuela in various sorts of international relations, including uh, while, for example, the most recent case, uh, bargaining uh, in getting access and being able to use uh, the funds of Central Bank of Venezuela or to have the Venezuela funds unfrozen in other banks. When we speak about sanctions imposed against Venezuela, we shall also speak about the frozen assets of uh, Venezuela companies as well as of the government in various states. Uh, but beside the direct sanctions, we also need to take into account that all the consequences of all these, uh, about which I will speak a little bit later, are exacerbated by the fact of overcompliance. That basically means that the um, companies as well as governments are usually very much afraid of doing business with any Venezuela company, not only those which are directly targeted, or not only those who which are from the sectors of economy under sanctions, but any company as well as any individual of Venezuela nationality, because of the fear that uh, they may have probably will violate one or another sanctions regime, because the scope of sanctions is very expanded and it's very complicated to 
uh, follow up uh, every specific individual. I'd like to revisit this point that you made when you mentioned overcompliance. So, as you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, the, the effects of sanctions became a topic of debate uh, precisely because experts were calling on world powers to lift sanctions so that countries could respond to the global health emergency. And, and while you note in your preliminary report that there were steps taken in early 2020 to minimize the humanitarian impact of the pandemic, recently we saw Venezuelan Vice President Delcy Rodriguez hold a press conference where she details some of the various instances where the sanctions have affected the country's ability to attend to the pandemic due to result of what you described previously as, as overcompliance, as banks afraid to handle transfers, freezing funds, moving funds. And so the United States, which is one of the countries that is issuing these sanctions, insists that it doesn't block activities and financial transactions related to humanitarian aid, but we've seen evidence to the contrary. What evidence have you seen to the contrary? When we speak about the problem of overcompliance, unfortunately, this problem is growing with every day to day. And uh, as I mentioned, that happens because, first of all, the uh, policy of secondary sanctions, when companies which try to deal with in one way or another with already sanctioned companies, uh, it themselves targeted, plus with the policy of development of civil and uh, criminal punitive legislation to make uh, accountable companies or individuals, or the nationals of the countries, which impose sanctions as such. And uh, today, uh, there are usually a number of countries which impose sanctions in one way or another over a specific country or a specific uh, sector of economy of a country. And that's why for an um, average company, it's very complicated to identify uh, what is the exact scope of uh, sanctions imposed against a specific country. And uh, I um, discussed this situation with uh, a number of NGOs and they said that it's nearly impossible as a result to identify what exactly is happening because new sanctions are adopted every day and it's necessary to have enormous human resources and naturally financial resources to be able to identify every day uh, who is targeted and who is not targeted. And moreover, it's possible to identify in today, but while you're doing a transaction, situation will change maybe tomorrow or in a week. And therefore, uh, banks have already faced uh, enormous charges. Uh, the, probably the highest one which has already existed was uh, $9 billion. And as a result, they try to choose and they choose the zero risk policy in doing any bank transaction. So the bank transaction, banks were the first one which got scared because of that. The company themselves usually uh, also become scared because the uh, uh, transactions may be blocked by the banks and moreover, they also do not have necessary capacities to identify with whom they can deal with or can't deal with every day and they have no guarantee that the situation will stay the same tomorrow. And here I speak about all sorts of companies, not only public, but also the private ones. Uh, and uh, I have been reported, for example, that the supplies of medicine or food reject to deal with companies from the targeted country, like for example, Venezuela, because of the fear of secondary sanctions or because of the fear of being subjected to criminal or civil liability. All these results in the enormous extraterritorial, enormous extraterritorial effect of unilateral sanctions and also um, in growing overcompliance with application of sanctions. 
I would refer here to the uh, a recent study which was done upon request of the European Parliament and the European Union did a statement that the European companies are affected a lot by application of extraterritorial application of the United States sanctions and growing over compliance with that. Although it's necessary to take into account that uh, the European Union itself and no state of the European Union is subjected to, for example, sectoral sanctions. So the uh, only the institutions which have been affected, they have mostly been affected by the secondary sanctions, if any. And uh, it's necessary to recognize that today, unfortunately, extraterritoriality and overcompliance is a part of reality of application of sanctions. Uh, in the course of uh, doing my job as a mandate holder, I interact with a lot of uh, humanitarian non-governmental organizations involved in the delivery of humanitarian aid. And all of them are absolutely unanimous uh, in saying that humanitarian exceptions are ineffective, insufficient, and can't be implemented in reality because of variety of reasons. Uh, first of all, it's traditionally very complicated to get a humanitarian exceptions license. Um, bigger humanitarian organizations can sometimes still do that uh, because of having these uh, sufficient uh, stuff. Uh, but the smaller ones see that it's just impossible to get it because it's necessary to fill so many papers and to know the procedure so well that uh, they just uh, can't do it because of the bureaucratical reasons. Uh, secondly, humanitarian exceptions mostly refer to the minimal scope of goods, so they uh, refer to food and medicine. Uh, but even food is med and medicine can't be received within that or can hardly be received. Uh, humanitarian exceptions usually do not refer to the medical equipment and they do not refer to reagents or to maintenance of critical infrastructure like electricity, water supply, and many other. Moreover, when I discuss the situation with humanitarian organizations, they say that uh, uh, even if they manage to get a license from uh, one country, uh, it doesn't mean that it will be possible for them to do bank transaction or to deliver humanitarian good because some other bank may block the money transferred regardless of the existing license. Uh, that's why this mechanism is non-functionable, unfortunately. It seems that in the coverage, when we're talking about unilateral coercive measures or sanctions, that there isn't a lot of discussion about its humanitarian or human rights impact. And so what needs to be done so that there's a greater understanding of how these measures ultimately do lead to a humanitarian and human rights impact? Indeed, you are absolutely right. There is a very, so definitely not sufficient discussion in the problem. Uh, however, some attention started to be paid to the problem. And that's why, for example, my mandate has been established in 2015 to uh, analyze the situation, to collect facts and to bring attention to the problem and to develop necessary um, documents or recommendations to all the stakeholders. Uh, I believe it's necessary, as I said, to assess the legality of any action taken uh, by states. Secondly, it's necessary to use the existing means of dispute settlement rather, rather than sanctions if countries have some sort of discrepancies in their relations. And here I'm speaking about 
all means starting from negotiations uh, up to the use of the judicial international institutions of uh, different sorts uh, as regards, for example, situation of sanctions. I speak about treaty bodies of the United Nations, original treaty bodies. I speak about the WTO dispute settlement mechanism, International Court of Justice, and many other institutions which can be used and which we established in order to uh, settle these disputes in a peaceful way. Uh, naturally, the important point is the observance of the rule of law and adherence to the rule of law. Uh, I always call states to uh, move from political discussion to the uh, humanitarian assessment and uh, assessment of legality. Upon my opinion, in the existing situation, uh, naturally, uh, upon my opinion, unfortunately, unilateral sanctions won't disappear in one moment. Uh, however, I believe it's necessary to pay attention to the consequences of unilateral sanctions for nearly all institutions of the United Nations. For example, the uh, World Health Organization and the uh, COVID crisis is a good example of the importance of that, because uh, today we are speaking about the problems of buying vaccine. Uh, COVID vaccine for the countries which are under sanctions. And at the beginning of the COVID crisis, I have been reported about impossibility to deliver humanitarian aid in the countries because the uh, delivery companies or transportation companies just rejected to do any delivery, for example, to Cuba because of the fear of sanctions. And uh, I can list uh, a number of other institutions which, uh, upon my opinion, shall pay attention to both the activity of governments and the impact of unilateral sanctions. Another sphere which is important uh, is the humanitarian monitoring, which I hope uh, will start to be done more actively by humanitarian non-government organizations. And their role is very important because they work in the field much more than any other institution. And uh, I also hope that the United Nations organization will involve some of its institutions, like, for example, OCHA, in this sort of monitoring. You place great emphasis on the need to observe the rule of law. Uh, but unfortunately, we've seen that there has been the imposition of certain sanctions regimes, unilateral coercive measures that don't meet the criteria. So is it necessary to build systems of accountability at the international level in order to avoid these kinds of scenarios from playing out? Unfortunately, you are right. And as I have mentioned, the majority of unilateral sanctions applied do not fit the criteria of international law. We need to take into account when we speak about the international accountability that uh, it may diverse a lot. Uh, that basically means that uh, we already have some instruments available. Beside the international adjudication, which I have already mentioned, and uh, I can cite, for example, the cases uh, in re relation between the states uh, like uh, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, uh, Egypt, uh, Bahrain, and United Arab Emirates, which has been had in a number of international body. And happily, after having that, or in the course of that, countries started to negotiate and they found a solution for the problem and they have signed the Al-Ula Declaration in January 2021. I believe that's a wonderful, I would say pioneering example, when countries used some means of adjudication and started to find for the peaceful solution by their own that resulted in the uh, enormous improval 
improve of the situation and uh, the sanctions have been withdrawn. So I hope that the other states will follow this example. Uh, as I also said, uh, this uh, judicial mechanism shall be used. Uh, there is now a case brought by Iran to the International Court of Justice. There is a case brought by Venezuela to the International Criminal Court. There are a number of cases brought to the European Court of uh, Justice and European Court of Human Rights. And I hope that the number of cases will increase because the um, reputation and status of these judicial institutions is very important. Uh, as for the accountability, uh, another accountability mechanism is making uh, the processes and problems visible. That's why, for example, I try to deal with individual cases and to forward communications to the countries which apply unilateral measures. And all the communications as well as the responses of states can be found at the web page of the mandate. So, it's, uh, so it makes the problem visible and it uh, basically usually uh, not very comfortable for the countries when they are addressed in this way uh, with references that maybe human rights have been affected by the activities. But we also need uh, to take into account that the mechanisms of international responsibility do exist. We have law of international responsibility uh, at the level of international customary law, and these mechanisms can also be used. Um, I believe that unfortunately today establishment of certain specific extra accountability mechanisms for uh, victims of uh, application of unilateral sanctions is still a matter of very far, far away future. I see that countries are still not able uh, to agree on the points about unilateral coercive measures. And a good illustration is the disputes which appear every time when the issue of unilateral coercive measures is discussed at the United Nations level. Sanctioning states refer to the fact that uh, measures are, uh, they apply are absolutely legal and humanitarian uh, exceptions are sufficient and the countries under sanctions refer that they are absolutely not legal. So um, I would say that uh, we need to start looking for the consensus uh, now, and it will help them to bring situation back to the rule of law and to guarantee human rights. And to, it is the only way which can permit us to start speaking about the international accountability in the future, because you can't establish accountability mechanism only with a group of states. They shall be of the universal nature. So I have one final question for you. Oftentimes, the work of the special rapporteurs ends up crossing over into a more overtly political realm. And I mention that because I want to know what you say to critics, including elements of the Venezuelan opposition, who said upon publication of your preliminary report that it was, quote, regime propaganda. That's an interesting question. I believe that I face the same statements or accusation every time when I forward any communication or do any statement. Uh, I need to say, first of all, that I'm not a political scientist and not a diplomat, I'm just a lawyer. Uh, that's why my approach to the mandate is to collect the facts, to verify the facts, and to uh, provide a legal assessment with naturally references to the international legal norms. I do not do political statements because, as I said, I, I'm a lawyer. 
my approach to the work, and basically it's absolutely in accordance with the code of conduct of special rapporteurs, is to collect materials from all possible sources. When we speak about the country visit to Venezuela, uh, it's necessary to keep in mind that information before, even before the country visit took place, I published the open call for contributions and welcomed information from all possible sources uh, about the impact of unilateral sanctions on Venezuela. I need to say that I received more than 80 responses from all interlocutors, uh, both governmental opposition, NGOs, civil society. Naturally, I received information from the government and uh, I requested information from the government as well. Uh, secondly, during the uh, visit itself, the visit consists of two main parts. Uh, some meetings uh, take place uh, with the governmental institutions or public institutions, but some other are done with the opposition groups, civil society, and other interlocutors. And if the first, first part, so the governmental uh, meetings and public institutions are organized by the government, the second part is organized by the United Nations, uh, the office in the field, and as well as the United Nations Office of Human Rights. Um, these, these very strong requirements uh, doing, while doing a country visit, and that's not about online mandate only, or the visit to Venezuela only, that refers to the behavior of all the special rapporteurs when doing a country visit, is to verify every fact we have. And, uh, I need to mention that uh, I met uh, various opposition groups while visiting Venezuela, and some of them have published tweets immediately after our visit, to, our meeting took place. I visited various groups of civil societies like uh, trade unions, uh, doctors, uh, professors, church. Uh, NGOs of various types uh, and many other. I talked to people at the streets and uh, all the facts which are cited in the report, uh, preliminary findings, as well as all the facts which are cited in the final report, which uh, generally speaking will be delivered uh, at the human rights, coming Human Rights Council session uh, in September this year. Uh, they are verified uh, from all both governmental, non-governmental sources and many other. And uh, as concerned, the number of meetings, I can see that around 40-45% uh, of meetings during the country visit to Venezuela have been organized by the government and uh, more than 50%, so around 55%, 60% were the meetings with civil society organized by the United Nations. Thank you so much for your time. We've been speaking with Elena Duhan, who is the Special Rapporteur, on the negative impact of unilateral corrective measures on the enjoyment of human rights. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining us for our inaugural episode. Remember, our on-the-ground work is 100% funded by readers and listeners. Please consider making a one-time donation or becoming a subscriber by visiting our website. You can also support us on Patreon. Be sure to visit us at venezuelanalysis.com for regular news and analysis on all things Venezuela. We're also everywhere on social media, from Telegram to Instagram, and of course, on Twitter. This podcast is a new endeavor for us. If you enjoyed the program, please share it with your friends and leave us a review if you can. We'll close today's episode with a song from Venezuelan artist Sandino Primera, son of the legendary communist singer and songwriter Ali Primera.
como quisiera olvidarte Pero estás conmigo y me persigue a todas partes Te veo en cada masacre En todos los ríos contaminados en el desastre Te veo siempre en el hambre Eres incapaz de arreglar lo que causaste Te veo Llorando y sin luces, la gente sufriendo, dependiendo de lo que no produce. Te siento siempre conmigo, aunque yo me oculte, vas y encuentras mi camino. Capitalismo, yo soy tu hijo, pero ya no puedo quedarme a tu lado tranquilo. Dominas en las alturas, dominas en la tierra, a la gente y las culturas. Y a todos nos echas la culpa, por fuera te maquillan, te embellecen, pero por dentro eres modelo de ultratumba. entendimos porque nos entendimos a nosotros mismos así fue que te vimos andabas escondido en nosotros sí pero te hemos descubierto sí todo lo que toca se corrompe sí el deporte se corrompe la salud se corrompe el conocimiento se corrompe las leyes se corrompe los gobiernos se corrompe las iglesias se corrompe la comuna se corrompe el arte se corrompe la gente se corrompe ya que todo lo corrompes a nosotros nos corrompes y somos nosotros sí no no te vas a esconder Sobrevives en nosotros sí. No nos vamos a esconder Se corrompe. Las voces. Se corrompe.